Well, I'm going to ask you to turn with me in the Word of God this morning. Revelation chapter 2, and our text is verses 8 through 11. And I'm going to ask you to go ahead and, and stand right now out of respect for the, the reading and the hearing of the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant Word of the living God. Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. Here's what Christ said to the church. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you'll have tribulation for ten days. But be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. You has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Long before... John Murray became one of the most important conservative Presbyterian theologians of the 20th century. He was a soldier. He was an infantryman in the Scottish Brigade in World War I, fought most of the war in France. And before he left, he and his brothers, they all got called up to war about the same time. His dad took them all into the family room and addressed them one by one before they got shipped off to battle. And as he went to each of the brothers, he would uh, say a word of encouragement over them and grant them a token of his affection and love. And finally he came to Tommy. His words were very direct and bitter. He said, Tommy, goodbye. I'll never see you again. And he hugged him, and it was true. Tommy died six months later in battle. You think about that, you begin to realize from that story, some people are very direct when they want to give bad news. And other times, they dance around the topic. There's some cultures that think that if you give bad news and you speak bad news out loud, not only will it come true, but it'll hurt the very people that are being spoken to. So it's not just impolite, it's simply something that's not done. And so there's a whole set of cultures who, when a loved one is facing death, won't say a word about it to them. They'll just act like everything is going on as situation normal. I'm struck by the fact this morning that's not Jesus Christ to his church. He's much like John Murray's father. Church at Smyrna, I love you. But you're going to suffer. There's something very authentic and real in the voice of Christ as He comes before the church and gives them the cold, unvarnished truth. You are about to suffer and the devil is about to cast some of you into prison and you're going to have tribulation for ten days. That's the straight talk expressed if there ever was one. 
And it's not talk that's generalities. You know, the Apostle Paul says that, that everyone who seeks to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. But this is the message of prophetic specificity. The time is coming and it's right around the corner and you're going to get thrown in jail and it's going to be 10 days and it's going to be murder, literally. Bad news for the church. But you know what's interesting about our text and in spite of the fact that it's full of such straightforward talk from Christ about, about the reality of suffering is that's not the heartbeat of our text. The heartbeat of our text this morning is not Jesus Christ coming to you and saying, are you a believer? Well, get ready. Put on your seatbelt because you're going to suffer. No, the heart of our text and the heart of the message to the church at Smyrna, which was about to suffer mightily, is not that they're going to suffer, but the heart of the text of Christ to them is, I'm with you. I'm with you. Through me, you will overcome all things. And so what Jesus would say to a suffering church or a church that's on the brink of enduring a season of great tribulation and trial, what Christ would say to you is when bad times come, just do what you've been doing in the Christian life. Just be faithful and hang on to me. And you'll get a crown of life that lasts forevermore. You see, what Jesus would say to the church is, well, it's a message of consolation. I want to expound on that in three parts this morning. Commendation, intervention, and motivation. We have commendation here, and I, I think it's important for us to take just a moment to think about the setting of this church and, and to whom the letter is written. It's written, obviously, as our text says, to the angel uh, of the church at Smyrna, and we'll remember from our past studies that the angel represents the pastor of the of the congregation, and in this case, we might just know the name of this pastor. It might just have been the great ancient church martyr named Polycarp, who was martyred for his faith about 50 years after this letter. And I'll talk more about that towards the end. So we know that it was written to the angel, but the point of writing the letter to the angel was not so that uh, the messenger or the pastor would just keep it for himself. The point of writing the messenger was so that they would give the message to the church. And we know that again because verse 11 says, let, the spirit, uh, let, let, let those who hear what the Spirit is saying to the church as. So the point is, each of these letters is not just specifically to, to one church, but it's to the churches. It's to us. But... The location of Smyrna in this church is important for understanding a few of the elements of, of this charge that Christ gives to the church. The church at Smyrna had been there for probably 40 years. Most likely was planted during Christ or Paul's third missionary journey, which means somewhere in the mid-50s of the apostolic era as, as he was uh, pastoring in, in Ephesus and running the school of theology there. The name of the town Smyrna means myrrh. And interestingly enough, myrrh is associated with death. So in a sense, the name of the city is apt for the message that Christ is giving to this congregation. You're about to die, myrrh. 
the city itself is something to be aware of in terms of its architecture and its um, symbolic presentation and outline because it was said if you stood at the seaport of Smyrna, which was a spectacular and large seaport, if, if you were to stand at sea level and look at the city as it began to, to extend up the hill, the pattern of the architecture looked like an elaborate crown. And at the top of the city was the height of Mount Pegasus. And this is where the temple was located. And this is where the cult of Caesar was located. And it was said to have stood out like the crown jewel in a diadem with all of the rest of the architecture of the city wrapping and folding around the hillsides as if there were so many studded diamonds in the, in the tiara. So it was a town of great wealth. It was a town of great beauty. And it was a town that was associated with the worship and the cult of Caesar. In fact, it had the claim to be the first city of Asia because they were so intensely devoted and committed to the worship of Caesar. And that's going to be helpful information when we begin to think about why the sufferings are so profound and intense in Smyrna. That's the church that's being written to. And I, I would have this note as we think about the commendation here that Christ gives to the church, the messenger who brings it. Notice the messenger here in verse 8. The first and the last who was dead and has come says this. We've encountered this language before back in Revelation chapter 1 where, where Jesus identified himself as the, the first and the last. But, but here Jesus gives a little specificity to this self-disclosure and self-identification with that pronoun, who. Notice it says, he is the first and the last, who. And then the language of the Greek here is a bit peculiar because it goes on to say, who himself died. Who himself died. And there seems to be a sense of self-involvement in the very death. That's the form of the verb. And so the idea of the text would be, he who himself gave to death. And we think about that. We remember of how Jesus spoke of himself as the great shepherd in John chapter 10. When he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it. I lay it down. I think that's part of the sense here of how Jesus identifies himself. That's a powerful form of identification with the audience because Jesus is speaking about their impending death, at least some of them. And he says, join the club. You stand in solidarity with me. But then next he adds, immediately falling upon the heels of that, and who came to life. It reminds us again of John chapter 10 where Jesus says, no one takes my life. Jesus says, death did not come upon him as something that's inevitable to come for all men. It didn't come as a surprise. No, it was all planned and very purposeful. But then Jesus said, but I take up my life. You see, one of the things that Jesus is saying to the church by way of preface to encourage them before he gets into the the darker details of the destiny of this congregation is he says, I'm the first and the last. There's nothing in between the scope of life and death that isn't under my sovereign control. 
think about that. There's nothing that stands in between here or outside of it. There's no compartment that doesn't fit within this range of my sovereign reach. I am the great first and the last, the one who went to death and was raised to life. The point of it all is to give a word of encouragement way before he gives a word of, of fear. And then he moves on to affirm them. And I know it's not in your text this morning, but really the first thing that, that Jesus highlights as he brings a, a word of affirmation and commendation to the church, he says, I know your works. The particular Greek text that's behind the New American Standard doesn't contain the phrase, but it's, it's in the best manuscripts. And so I mention it here because the very first thing that Jesus says is, I know your life. I know your works. I know what you're committed to. I know how you live. I can see the abundance of, of your faith by how your life overflows with service. And so he highlights the faithfulness of these Christians to Christ. And then he says, following up upon that, I know your tribulations. This is an ugly word. Every time we say it, we cringe, slips this. It's an awful word. You, you could sound more beautiful in Greek than that. Slipsis. It speaks of the most severe, painful, ongoing trials and pains and miseries. It was an extensive tribulation. It was an extended season of pain. And what might perhaps put a face on this tribulation is what he says next, I know your poverty. Um, th this is a term for poor that doesn't just mean impoverished or lacking in funds. It means dirt poor. Abject poverty. It's no food in the cupboards. Poor. It's panhandling on the corner and no one giving you cash. Poor. And here's where we begin to tie this message into Smyrna, the city where they're from, which was dominated by the cult of Caesar. And you see, this poverty didn't come upon them by providential mishap. You see, for the Smyrna Christians to come to Jesus Christ meant they gave up everything for Christ. Because the city life and the culture and the trade unions and the merchant class and the shops and the business life of the city was governed by those who were committed to the cult of Caesar. So when you came to Christ, you lost Everything, including your family. In antiquity, there was no welfare system, and so the only people who might be able to help you if you were in dire need was your family. And if you came to Jesus Christ, well, your family rejected you and kicked you out of the house. Their poverty was a poverty which was on account of Jesus Christ. One commentator says this, becoming a Christian was a real sacrifice. It meant poverty and hungry and imprisonment and death. We don't know suffering like that, thankfully. But we do know a kind of suffering. 
I remember years ago when it became known to the church I was a part of that I had become an exclusive psalm singer in worship. I had an elder come alongside of me one time and said, that's a CLM, Satil. And I looked at him and said, what in the world is a CLM? And he says, it's a career-limiting move. And it was. But the perspective was so odd to me. It wasn't that you're returning to the historic Reformed understanding and tradition. You're seeking to be faithful to the regulative principle of worship we confess. The assessment was bound up with whether or not it was good for business. wasn't the assessment of Smyrna when they came to Christ. The question of the church of Smyrna wasn't whether following Jesus would be good for business and career advancement. You see, we need to be encouraged people of God that the Smyrna church in face of the, the most profoundly difficult circumstance maintained their faith in Christ because they believed and they counted Christ as of more worth than things here below. Can you imagine what a church looks like that believes that? Can you imagine what a witness that would have been to a culture as godless and corrupt and pagan as Smyrna? That people so loved Christ and the faith that they would become impoverished and endure the most severe of afflictions in order to express allegiance to him rather than to enjoy the seasons of and pleasures of sin and worldliness for a while. And that's what Jesus tries to get across to them, by the way. I know that's the aim and the purpose for bringing this all up because I want you to notice what stands out in the midst of the text here in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but it's a powerful, adversative con a conjunction. I know your works. I know your poverty. I know your suffering, but you are rich. By the way, rich is in the emphatic position, so Jesus says, but rich you are. He's not speaking ironically or in terms of metaphor. He's speaking about what is reality, at least spiritually speaking. They are rich in Christ. They are, they are rich in the love of God. They are rich in grace. They are rich in mercy. They are rich in the forgiveness of sins. They are rich in the fruit of the Spirit. They are rich in the exercises of faith. They're rich. What they have is far greater than... All of the possessions you could stack up from the wealthy city of Smyrna. I think we should pause just a moment on the perspective that Jesus Christ offers here because it's so important. I, I think it's absolutely moving that Jesus begins from where they are at. He speaks to the church in terms of what is real. He speaks to the church in terms of what it feels. It feels the sting of tribulation. 
It knows the harsh reality of, of severe, dirt-poor poverty. And, and by Jesus acknowledging that, He's saying to them, I'm walking in your midst, and I haven't lost sight of it. Notice how Jesus, by acknowledging it, uh, is telling the church, I'm not indifferent to your sorrows. And yet, isn't that the thing you think when you go through all of your trouble? That no one sees and no one knows and no one cares. And so what do we do in, in, in view of that? We, we become very good at become calloused and, and hardened and get a stiff lip. And we seek to grind it out. Because no one cares anyway. And Jesus says, I know your trouble. I've walked with you right alongside of them and you didn't see I was there. You don't have to hide your problems, people of God, and pretend they don't exist. You were never called to do that. But one of the things I think is important as you follow the movement of Christ's address to the churches, even though that He speaks to the heart of these Smyrnans and He says, I, I see it. The fact that he moves from their troubles to their riches tells us Jesus says, there's another way to look at your life. There's another way for you to look at your life. And it begins with lifting up your head. See what you are in Christ. Rich you are. You see, what Jesus is doing is reorning their perspective from a worldly perspective to a spiritual perspective. And see, it's so important because apparently what we experience today is what they experienced then. In a world, in a culture that is caught up in, in materialism and self-worth identified with money and creature comforts and possessions entertainment and recreations. You see, the world around us would say that, that your life is useless if you can't measure it in terms of this world's goods. It would say to you that things are going very badly for you and you are to be pitied and you are to think of yourself as a victim. That's what it wants from you. It wants you to think of yourself as a victim. And Jesus says, No. You're not a victim. You're rich. You're rich. Because Jesus Christ could care less about your looks. Or your shoes. Or your physical health. Or your bank account. Or your job title. What Christ assesses is your faith. You see, if we are in Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul says that we have been seated in the heavenly places with Him and we partake of every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so all Christ says to you in all of your lack and all of your need and, and uh, in all of your misery, He says, all that matters is who are you looking to and what do you trust? And are you willing to suffer for Him? Jesus commends the church at Smyrna because in spite of all of their great difficulties, they were a people of faith. 
their allegiance to Christ was firm. And after saying all the good things, he moves on to say the bad things. And it's hard to read. You see, I think we could look at this in a sense of Jesus coming alongside them and uh, staging a sort of intervention and saying to the people of God, you think it's bad now. It's about to get much worse. Look at verse 9. He he speaks uh, after the commendation there uh, of those who are blaspheming them. He says, And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, they're a synagogue of Satan. <coughs> the word blasphemy here is not to be taken in the theological sense of saying something that is um, heretical, theologically speaking. The word blasphemy is here used in its more literal sense and denotation of, of slander. Of slander. And the people doing the slander uh, were the Jews. They were the Jews of, of the apostolic era. And one of the things about the Jews of the apostolic era is that over time, their hatred of the Christians became more and more acute. And yet, early on, as the Jews were watching the Christians at some points, we read in the book of Acts, they, they looked at them and they were a bit envious of the fellowship of the believers in Christ. And for a time, it seems as if the Christians could take some sort of legal cover under the wings of the synagogue because Judaism, on account of its antiquity, was allowed to be a religion of legal standing within the empire, which meant they didn't have to offer sacrifices to Caesar. If you were not a part of, a, of an approved legal Roman religion, you had to enroll and enlist in the cult of Caesar. And pay homage to him. But you see, the Jews didn't have to do that because of their legal standing. And over time, what the Jews began to realize is one way they could get back at these pesky Christians was to make clear to the Roman government, they're no part of us. In about 90 AD, a document began to be circulated in the Jewish synagogues of the Roman Empire called the Curse of Menem. And the curse of Menon was a declaration to clear out of the synagogues all of the Christians who found cover underneath it. And the purpose of it was to force them into the public square and to expose them as traitors to the Roman state so that they would fall under their wrath. And the Roman emperor at that time, Domitian, began to ratchet up persecution against the church because it wasn't a legal religion and because they were declared to be atheists because they refused to worship the cult. But you see, it was all done in the name of piety though, wasn't it? It, it was cloaked in, in the perfume of righteousness and godliness. We, we call ourselves the Jews, the children of Abraham. We're the covenant people. They, they claim the name of something special to God. And Jesus responds to that. And I, notice, I want you to notice here, we have the claim, but He says they are a, a synagogue of Satan. It, 
And there's a few different ways you can take that prepositional phrase of. It could be owned by, it could indicate source, that is from Satan, or, or it could be in league with Satan. It doesn't matter which way you take the preposition. Every single one of them is bad. If you're owned by Satan, it's bad. If your source is, uh, if your source is Satan, it's bad. And if you're in league with Satan, it's bad. Or all three of them can be true at once. But Jesus pulls no punches as he speaks of these Jews. He says, if you are, are drawing a line of demarcation between the synagogue and the Christians, you are a synagogue of, of Satan. I was having a discussion with one of my colleagues last week at work. and He said that while he was in one of his seminary classes, they had invited a rabbi in to speak to them about Judaism. And he posted a question in the chat box so that everyone could see it. He just wanted to know. It was a question of, of information. It was an inquisitive question. And the question was this to the rabbi. Um, you've heard of these so-called messianic Jews, right? <laughs> Who try to behave like Jews in every other way except they believe in Jesus, right? And, and he just wanted to know. It was a curiosity question. Uh, do you regard them as Jews? Because he, he, he pointed out that in, in the lecture, the, the rabbi said you could be a, an atheist and a Jew. You could be an atheist and still be called a Jew because you adopt the Jewish culture. So all he wanted to know is in view of that, is a messianic Jew a Jew? Well, you know what his professor did? He was a Christian. He got irate and rebuked him for asking the question. This conversation was going on before my clinical supervisor, the head chaplain, and he said, oh, I had that same experience when I was in graduate school. One of his classes he took from a rabbi, and he asked the rabbi in the class, he said, what do you think of Messianic Jews? And the rabbi said this, quite emphatically, there's no such thing as a messianic Jew. People of God, that's what I want you to hear when you hear synagogue of Satan. They cloak their slander and their behavior in, in, the, in the language and in the persona of godliness. But Jesus says of those, if you do not have a messianic streak in you, and you call yourself a Jew, you're a synagogue of Satan. Matthew Poole, commenting on the text, puts it this way. They are indeed a collection of devils or the devil's children. And they act after the manner of their father, who was a murderer from the beginning. You see, the Christians were being assaulted by those who had the nerve and the arrogance to identify themselves with God. Well, they hated his Christ. Synagogue of Satan.
And it gets worse here as Jesus speaks of the testing. He goes on to say, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Verse 10, Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you'll be tested and you'll have tribulation for ten days. Here's a lot in this verse, but I think what epitomizes this and which is really the climax of Jesus' warning here is the ten days. And if you're to look this up in commentaries and consult people about what the ten days means, you'll get as many different answers as there are commentators likely. Some say the ten days refers to a definite season. Others say the ten days refers to a short season. Others say that the ten days uh, uh, was an indefinite season. (laughs) You know what's the most convincing explanation ever? It's uh, from Dr. Colin Hemer, who studied inscriptions from the era He studied inscriptions from the era in ancient literature in 10 days. He documented quite convincingly was a reference to the time frame when somebody was held prisoner before they were sent into the arena for gladiatorial combat against wild beasts. The warning of Jesus here is they are about to become the victims of bloodthirsty crowds and hungry wild beasts. It's terrifying to think that this happened to so many of our dear Christian brethren, ripped to shreds alive by the mouths of lions. The thing that Jesus sets before them is really terrifying. I want you to notice that Jesus says there's a purpose in it all. And I... It all begins with what you see back at the initial word in verse 9. I know. Jesus knows the ten days is coming. He knows that, as he says here, that Satan is going to cast some of them into prison. They'll be tested. They'll have tribulation for ten days. But notice in the midst of it, the key thought here is that Jesus says to the church, you'll be tested so that you will be tested. And one of the things that becomes clear to us when we think about this in connection with the rest of the New Testament teaching on testing, it's fairly obvious that Satan doesn't get to be the tester. Satan may be the means that God uses to put us in the circumstance of difficulty, but God is in charge of the testing. The point of it from Christ is to say to them, I know it feels random and out of control. But everything you are about to endure falls under the sovereign hand and control of God. It has a purpose. Its purpose is testing. And the testing is to show your faith. Remember how James puts it in James chapter 1? He says, Count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into testing. For the testing of your faith works endurance. You see, what Jesus Christ did for the church is He put them in the way of calamity and suffering and tribulation so that they would have the experience of seeing Christ work in them in such a way that they would be able to see the fruit of grace in their life before they were devoured by beasts. That their heart and their faith may be fixed Ensure. While Satan was raging, God was testing in order to bless his church. 
And the message for the church in all ages is one of confidence and encouragement. You see, one of the things that we feel when we go through trial and tribulation and suffering is that no one's in control. It might feel like our pain is in control. It might feel like our fear is in control. It might feel like our miseries are in control. But it feels like no one else can control it. Jesus' point to the church here is, God is in control. He sees it. And though Satan means it for evil, God means it for good. What do you do when you fall into trouble, tribulation, trial, and suffering? Well, you do exactly what you did before you got into it. You walk by faith. You live like a Christian. And you cling to whatever slice of truth you, hands of faith, can grasp. Jesus says you do that. And God is going to do a great thing in you. He's going to show you the, the fruit of endurance. In view of that, he gives the church an admonition now that's part of the intervention. And uh, it's sort of a jolting admonition, if you will, because he says here, you're going to have tribulation for ten days. But he says, don't fear. Don't fear. It reminds us of what Jesus said already back in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 to his disciples. Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They can't touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. You see, the perspective that Jesus is giving the church is don't fear because what is of eternal value and weight is your soul. Don't be afraid because your hands, because your life is resting in the hands of the Heavenly Father. And because of that, Jesus gives them an exhortation. He says, be faithful unto death. That's a very powerful admonition there at the end of verse 10. You will have tribulation for 10 days, but you be faithful unto death. You see why Jesus addresses himself as he comes to this church as the one who is the first and the last, who himself became dead and then was alive? Because as he brings this message of intense suffering and difficulty of the church, he knows he has an exhortation to give them and to us. And that exhortation is, in spite of the sorrow, in spite of the suffering, be faithful. We can't do that on our own. And that's why Jesus addresses himself to us this morning as the one who himself died. To remind us that the only way we can do this, be faithful unto death, is through our union with Jesus Christ, who himself laid down his life. And we do that in the confidence of knowing that he is the one who also came to life. These words, be faithful, are not hollow words of exhortation. They are filled with the solemnity 
of the self-identification of Christ. I am the first and the last. Who himself came to death and then to life. They're designed to encourage you this morning that whatever you face, Jesus says, here's how you do it. Be faithful until you draw your last breath. What a sobering and powerful admonition to us. Are you there? Come now to the last thing that Jesus says to his church, and it's a it's a great word of relief, I feel, after such heaviness. Motivation. There's two things here that that Jesus says, first of all, I'm going to give you the crown of life. The crown of life, and the word here for crown is Stephanos, which is the victor's wreath. The Greeks and the Romans held games all throughout the empire, and they're not like the Olympics today, where people talk about how great it is to get a bronze medal. In the Greco-Roman games, there was one, and that was for the winner. They didn't care about participation ribbons. They cared about one thing, and that was somebody who had the grit and the determination and the excellence to be the victor. And Jesus says, he speaks to his church here, he says, there's something for you as you determine to persevere. I will give you the crown of life. I will raise your hand in victory. You see what it is, the shot straight across the bow of Smyrna. Remember how I told you what Smyrna looked like if you stood at the seaside up to the city as it raised to the elevation of the heights of Mount Pegasus? That the intricate structure of the architecture and the buildings as they wound their way up the hillside to the top and the heights of Mount Pegasus it looked like a, a giant tiara. So many series of sparkling diamonds as the, as, the, as the sun lights shed their rays upon them. And at the very top of it was the crown jewel of Pagus, which was the heart and center of the cult of Caesar and his worship. In other words, it looked like a crown. The city gave this message to its citizens. If you're Smyrna, you're important. You're rich. Be satisfied in the wealth of the city and its life. And to all those who are being crushed underfoot by the evil and the godless city of Smyrna, Jesus says there's a better crown than the heights of Mount Pagos. It's the crown of life. There's something that's greater than all this world has to offer you. And that's the crown of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then to them he follows that up with a second great word of motivation. He says, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. You know that second death is, is spelled out for us in the book of Revelation chapter 20 verse 14. And it's uh, all that's outside of Christ swept into the lake of fire to be engulfed by hell's flames 
for eternity. Eternal separation from God in body and soul to an eternal existence of living, burning hell. And Jesus says, if you endure this short season of suffering and are faithful unto death in allegiance to me, you need to do it by setting your sights on something that the world can't possibly offer you. You need to set your sights on Christ. It's going to take us all of our life, people of God, to take our thoughts and our heart's affections off of this age. I'm sure you know that. It's going to take our whole life doing this. But every single time we take a step towards the right direction, Jesus Christ is there to grab our hand and to lead us to take one more step each time by faith. And as we do that, Christ says at the end of it all, there is a great reward and a great promise. And you'll never, ever, ever feel like you missed out on anything here. What does it all mean? I think what it all means comes to focus in the story of Polycarp's martyrdom. I told you at the outset of our message here that this letter was written to the angel of the church of Smyrna. And if historical sources are accurate, it's likely that Polycarp was probably the pastor of the church at Smyrna. Would have been a young man in his mid-30s. But then one day, a, a cohort of soldiers came knocking at his door. They had heard of where Polycarp was and that he was a fugitive and he was wanted by the proconsul in Smyrna. So they came to his house and they found an old man, 86 years old, lying in his bed praying. And he knew what they were there for. And so he told the people of the house to welcome the soldiers in and to give them something to eat and to drink, which they did. And he begged him, he said, can I stay here for an hour and just pray? And the people who were there said it felt like heaven and earth was being moved. And so he prayed and he cried out to God for help and strength. And at the end of the hour, he presented himself unto them. And so they picked him up and they put him on a donkey and they marched him right into town in Smyrna. And along the way, who did he meet? But a couple of Jewish politicians who grabbed him off the donkey and put him in their chariot and they began trying to befriend him and say to him, Polycarp, what big deal is it if you just sacrifice to Caesar? And they did this a couple of times and he ignored them and then he turned to them and he said to them, I will never renounce Christ. At which point they began to mock him and berate him and they threw him out of the chariot and he broke his leg. And from there, he hobbled on a broken leg into the amphitheater of Smyrna. It was said that the crowds were so loud you couldn't even hear yourself talk. He was brought before the proconsul of the city and the proconsul looking at him and seeing he was 86 years and hobbling into town and in the arena with a broken leg. He had pity upon him because he respected his age and his place in life. And he said to Polycarp, please, just sacrifice to Caesar. 
you will have the dignity of the death of an old man. Can you imagine what was going through Polycarp's mind? How about the words of Jesus Christ? You're about to suffer tribulation. Be faithful until death. The crowds were cheering behind him and around him, away with the atheist. And after the proconsul kept putting the question to him whether he would deny Christ and, and to worship Caesar, he turned and looked at the proconsul straight in the face and he said, away with the atheists, as he pointed to the jeering crowds. And the proconsul warned him. He says, I have wild beasts right here to devour you. And Polycarp looked at him and said, I fear no wild beast. And so the proconsul said, good, I'm going to light a fire. The long and the short of it is that they brought a huge pile of wood down before Polycarp and they led him from the podium. He hobbled onto the wood and they brought out a cross and they sought to nail his hands to it and he refused. He said, let my hands be free. And they said one more time to him, Polycarp, will you worship Caesar? And here is what he said. 86 years. My Savior has been faithful to me. How can I deny him in this hour? And then he prayed. And he said, I give thanks to you. Because you have counted me worthy of this hour. That I should have a part in the number of your martyrs. And in the cup of Christ. And the flame was lit. And his body was consumed before a crowd of thousands screaming away with the atheist. It's such a moving story because obviously the drama and the pain and the sorrow. But what moves us is that it took 50 years for Polycarp to listen to these words and let them settle upon his mind so that when he faced the hour of the greatest temptation, after all, who could blame an 86-year-old man for not wanting to be devoured by wild beasts to say, okay, I, I sacrificed a little bit to Caesar. took all that time for the word of God to do its work in him. But the result was a crown of life. People of God, the, the straight talk which Jesus speaks to us this morning, well, it's straight talk about what will happen to people who serve him faithfully. You won't have to pray for it. You won't have to intentionally put yourself in the way of it. You don't have to seek it. The sufferings will come. The tribulations will come. And so what do we do in view of that? Well, we do what Jesus calls us to do and which Polycarp himself personified in his last great moments on this life. We take this word of exhortation of our Savior and internalize it 
Do not fear. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. May Jesus Christ give us here and here.